0: But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Speak, O Lord, that your church might hear. Thank you that your church in your perfect time will be completed, that there will come an hour, maybe even today, where the last person that makes up the church will call upon you in faith, and in a moment's time, your Son will come and gather us. We look forward to that day. You promised it to us, and all your promises are true. We thank you for your sovereign providence in every respect, how your plan will be fulfilled in your ways. But you've called us in the interim until you take us by death or by rapture to be faithful stewards of the gospel. Every born-again, blood-bought child of God, you've given that commission to. So, Father, help us to be sensitive to the people around us this week, many who are without direction, like sheep without a shepherd, not really even knowing how to interpret the days in which we live in. So as we open your word, we ask you to humbly open our hearts that we might see the truth that is here, that we would be changed by it. Thank you that a day will come that is the waters cover the earth so there will be a knowledge of you across the planet when the Messiah will return. We long for those days, days of righteousness, days of holiness, and you love people. You've died for all, that all who might believe would be forgiven and have new life, and yet you've chosen us this fallible, sinful people with feet of clay, to take the gospel and to share it with people. Help us to do that faithfully this week. Now, Father, I need your help today as always. I don't want to preach in my strength, so I ask the Spirit of God to come and help me and fill me and anoint me, that all that is said and done and heard would be glorifying to your Son, and I ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. If you're new to the Bible, you can find Psalms, which is about dead center. In between 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles, you will find 1 and Second Kings. You can't miss it. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been in a series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. Elijah lived in very difficult days, much like we are living in. And we have seen how the Holy Spirit loves to teach God Godly people, godly lessons through other godly people. And Elijah is one such example. He was a man who dared to trust and to believe God in a day where apostasy was widespread, where tens of thousands of Israelites had turned away from the living God. And here was a man who had a passion for the things of God, and he was grieved when God's ways were not honored. And so God honored Elijah, God honored his life. And he is swept up into heaven, as we will study before we're done with this series. Ten messages. This is the seventh of the ten messages that I hope to preach. He is honored as one of Earth's greatest heroes, and without a doubt, he is one of heaven's greatest saints. In First Kings, he suddenly appeared in chapter 17, and we will see him just as quickly disappear. And sandwiched between his entrance and his exit is a record of the incredible mark that this man was able to leave on Israel's history. Now let me remind you of the context of our chapter this morning. We've seen that chapters 17 and 18 and 19 form a triad of sorts on the victory that God brought through Elijah over the prophets of Baal and Baalism. Chapters 20, 21 and 22 form a second triad on the failure of Ahab as he opposes the word of God. And so if you were here last time, we left Elijah in chapter 19, where Elijah commissions Elisha as his protege. And for the next several years, he is going to disciple this man in great depth. We didn't study this morning chapter 20 because this series is on the prophet Elijah. But it's an important chapter, and you should reference it possibly this week. But in either case, in chapter 20, if you have read it, then you know that King Ahab is dealing with the idolatrous Arameans. And because the Arameans in some ways are even more wicked than Israel was, God chose to give King Ahab victory. And yet in spite of that grace that God showed him, this man continues to live with a hard, unrepentant heart. And at the end of the chapter, it says that he was rebellious and furious when he comes back to his house. Now, that brings us into chapter 21, where we find Elijah the Tishbite. With that brief introduction, let me begin by reading a portion of our passage, 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning now in verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. So Ahab came into the house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came, in, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is sullen and that you are not eating food? So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, you cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death." So she carries out the plot. Then look down, if you will, at verse 17. "'Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, "'Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. "'Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, "'where he has gone down to take possession of it. "'You shall speak to him, saying, "'Thus says the Lord, "'Have you murdered and also taken possession?' And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you, and will utterly sweep you away, and will cut you off from Ahab, and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. Now, the focus of this chapter is on the justice of God, and there are two simple principles that I want us to leave with this morning, two marks, two truths that I want to burn into your minds today. The first concerns the fact that saved people will pay now. In reference to God's justice, the first truth is that saved people will pay now. Now, the chapter opens where we're introduced to a devout Israelite, a follower of the Lord. His name is Naboth. Again, here in verse 1, it came about after these things. After what things? After the battles that are recorded in chapter 20 that God gave King Ahab victory over. It came about after these things that Naboth... The Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel. Now, whenever you see a, a word or a name in Scripture that ends in L, it has something to do with God. L is one of the names you know for God, and the place Jezreel literally means God will sow. It was named as such because it was a very fertile place. It had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So this verse informs us that contiguous to Ahab's property was a little piece of land that Naboth the prophet owned. So he comes in fresh from victory, from a campaign, and he's been successful, and no doubt his heart is filled with a sense of pride, and so he wants to go to the winter palace. He wants to take a little bit of a break. Now, if you look on a map, and you can see, as this one will show you, that Samaria and Jezreel are... Not that far apart, but if you've been to Israel, then you know that there are four different climate zones within that small patch of land. And this picture actually gives you a sense of what it was like. You can go to Tel Jezreel. It's not that far from Tel Megiddo. It's a beautiful spot. lovely spot. You can see why uh, this king would want to go there and get some R and R. Now we're informed in verse two. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. So he's a near neighbor. He looks out his palace window, sees this adjacent property. He wants it. He wants to turn that vineyard into a vegetable garden. And so he offers to buy it. In fact, he offers to replace it with even a better vineyard, or if he prefers, to give him cash. And so it appears he's acting very honorably. But he has no idea that Naboth has no desire whatsoever to cooperate with this generous offer. One would have thought that Naboth would have laid aside any sentimental attachment that maybe he and his family had on this piece of property and honored his king. But he's not about to allow this king to have the property. Understand Naboth as he's painted here in Scripture. He is a God-fearing Israelite. He abhorred what was evil and he embraced that which was good. And he was not about to take money in order to be disobedient. Why? Because he served a greater king. He served the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10 that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Not money, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. A lot of people have sold their souls for money. And you can tell a lot about a person as to how they will respond to money. If I asked you, would you commit adultery on your spouse, you'd probably say, not on your life. I would never, ever want to do that. But if I said, would you commit adultery for a million dollars, then the place of your heart would truly be seen. And so what Naboth is experiencing here is actually a monetary temptation. And so God records his response in verse 3, notice, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now his answer does not infer that he's sentimental about this land that his family had had for generations. He just was a God-fearing Jew. And as a Jew, he inherited the land. And he knew, as God affirmed in Scripture, that in every transaction, there's a third party. Namely, the Lord, God who created the heavens and the earth, God who owns the world and everything in it, as Psalm 24-1 affirms, would be involved in this. And God had given the land to every tribe by an allotment. And the Scripture is very clear in Leviticus 25 and verse 23 that the land was not to be sown. You might want to put that in the margin. Let me read it to you. Leviticus 25-23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently... For the land is mine, for you are aliens and sojourners with me. So for impoverished families, as you read the law, you discover that God made some provision for temporary land sales, what we might call today a renting or leasing a piece of property. But it always reverted back to the original ownership. In addition, God spelled out very clearly that the land always had to stay within the tribe. And so twice over, we read this morning that this is Naboth the Jezreelite. So Jezreel is in the area where God allotted a piece of property to the tribe of Ishakar. And when you look at King Ahab and his daddy, that meant he was from the tribe of Dan, which may be very telling as to why he was so wicked in his ways. But God plainly said in the book of Numbers, put out in the margin as well, Numbers 36 and verse 9, thus no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. Now, there's no other people on the face of the earth who've retained their land after thousands and thousands of years but the Hebrew people. Yes, they have been an oppressed people. Yes, they were thrown off their land beginning in 70 A.D. and completed in 132 A.D., And just as God said, Christ predicted himself they would be spread to the four corners of the world. But God said at the end of time, he would bring the Jewish people back into the land. And what's so amazing is that the Jewish people are the only people on the face of the earth that live in a land that bears the same name, where the people speak the same language, they uphold the same faith and they inhabit the same piece of property, this land called Israel. No other nation in 3,000 years could make such a claim. In either case, it appears that Naboth was not an impoverished man. He wasn't poor, and so he's not about to rent it. Number one, Ahab doesn't meet the requirements of the tribe, but God is very much a part of this man's life. God rules this man's life because this man had yielded to the Lord. And understand, I'm sure he recognized that in this day of gross idolatry and apostasy, that even if somehow he were impoverished and he were to sell it to someone within the same same tribe, there's a good chance he would never see it again because people weren't really obeying the law. And so with a firm resolve with a fear, a holy fear, a healthy fear of God in his heart, he says, no, I won't do it. Look at verse three. He plainly says, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, you could render the Hebrew this way, a curse from the Lord upon me if I sell the inheritance of my father's. He had a perfect right to refuse Ahab's offer, but more than a right, he had a responsibility. He treasured this land gift that God had given to his family there in the tribe of Issachar, and he intended that he was not about to make money. Even though the king's offer was more than generous, he was more concerned with obedience. And so with much fear of God and little fear of man, he just says, no. He doesn't say, well, I need to think about this. I need to pray about this. Listen, when you know what the will of God is, you don't have to pray whether or not you're going to do it. There's just a quick, firm, final, courteous, no way I won't do it. Added to that, remember, he's living right next door to the king's palace. We've seen that Jezebel and Ahab worship Baal. He has heard and seen the idolatrous worship right next door, not to mention the sexual orgies that would be involved in the worship of Baal. And not on his life was he going to take this piece of property where they had prayed, where they had fellowshiped, where they had read and studied the Word of God, where they had many holy memories, and give it to this evil family. He was not going to allow his land in any way, shape, or form to be tainted Look at verse 4. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. So he comes home, and the Scripture says he is sullen and vexed, so you could render it sullen and vexed and angry or sullen and displeased depending on your translation he's really pretty childish he lays on his bed he's sulking he's pouting why because he can't have what he wants he wants this little adjacent vineyard he is filled with a blubbering cry of sorts he turns his face towards the wall don't give me anything to eat he's just a big big baby and like so many people today he's not interested in the kingdom of God, and investing his time, talents, and treasure for the Lord. The only thing he's interested in is fulfilling his covetous, lustful heart. But that does not surprise us, because Ahab is described as a very evil, evil man. And so here in verse 25, towards the end of the chapter, we read, surely... There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. Now, we've already seen that he has a throne, he has a crown, he has a scepter, but he is really in many ways under the control of his own wife. She is a wicked woman. And the text says here that Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And let me just say parenthetically that a woman, a wife, can incite a man for noble purposes or for sinful purposes. When a woman slumps spiritually and morally, very often her husband will slump morally and spiritually. They will fall, and there are many biblical examples. Delilah brought down Samson. Herodias brought down Herod. Drusula, governor Felix. Zerish, her husband Haman. Many, many examples. And I could say there are many examples too in Scripture. Where a woman lifts up her husband, and as his helpmate, promotes him into those things that are holy and true. And By the way, this is one of the reasons that God is insistent that there not be role reversal. And in every example in Scripture where there is role reversal, when a man disobeys and he gives leadership as the head to his wife, there's disaster, and that's true. We've seen it in every major Protestant denomination where they said, no, we're going to give the pulpit to women. God has a different call for women. He has a higher call and a holy call. And I explained that in one of my messages in 1 Timothy 2, if this is new to you. But when they reverse roles, it was disaster. And so now we have these mainline Protestant denominations that are marrying homosexual people that are denying the infallibility of Scripture, denying that Jesus is the only way, denying that he's God in human flesh, denying the Trin- Trinitary, uh, Trinitarian theology, and on and on and on we could go. But again, there are examples of good, but here's Jezebel, and she masters, and she stirs up and incites her husband to do evil. Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And we studied in 1 Kings 16, That he, because of her incitement, made some choices for which God will hold him totally responsible. So in 1 Kings 16 verse 32 it says, "So he Ahab erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and he also made the Asher. He introduced some of his own evil idols." He is responsible for his own sin. Why? Because he listens to her. Thus, Ahab, the scripture says, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who went before him. We often say it's true that a great man is lifted by a great woman. And the corollary is true, an evil woman can drag down a good man. It works both ways. I can tell you by testimony, I would not be the man that I am today were it not for my wife. And 40 years ago today, I made the second most important decision in my life to covet that I would love her until death do us part. And I thank God for what he has done through her. Now, when Ahab steps on the scene, it looks like, you know, the antichrist has arrived centuries too early. Again, we read in 1631, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. You remember Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? He was a a man who was given the blessing of having charged the first king after the kingdom split over the 10 northern tribes. And God said, look, if you obey me, I will bless you. But he's scared that the people will you know, leave his northern kingdom and go south. And so he creates his own idolatrous centers of worship. And so what this man did, Jeroboam, comparatively speaking, was trivial compared to the evil of this man known as Ahab. But helping to drive this decision is his wife, for the text says he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, You can hear the word Baal in his own name. He's a worshiper of Baal. Some think that he actually introduced and invented Baal worship. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. Baal worship, it's lethal. It's destructive to the nation And it's especially destructive when the king has his own in-house evangelist, namely Jezebel. And so she wants to establish a beachhead for what is wrong and what is evil and what is satanic. And in her mind, look, this is what my daddy did, and this is my call as Baal's evangelist. And so she is infinitely more evil and daring and reckless in her sin than her husband Ahab, but she will incite him to evil. And so what does she do? Well, we're going to see this morning she is going to commit a heinous, evil act against an innocent man. Why? Because she's given herself to idolatry. And when you give yourself to idolatry, you often give yourself to demon possession. People who deal with demon possession in some nations of the world are dealing with people who are first idolatrous, and when they open the door to idolatry, as Paul explains in his first letter to the Corinthians, you open the door to being demonized. Look again at chapter 21 and verse 25. I just want to read it to you one more time. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel his wife incited him. I want you to burn that thought into your mind this morning as we study this chapter of Scripture. Now, back to verse 4. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away in his face and ate no food. So he stomps off, flops down on the bed, turns his head towards the wall, and he says, I'm not eating. Now, I'll try not to make any modern-day applications to anyone here, but I want you to see that what he is doing, he's throwing a little fit. He's acting like a big baby. I want that vineyard for my vegetable garden. And the Scripture says that the eyes of man many times, especially a lost man, are never satisfied. It's especially true if you let your heart become covetous. Look at verse 5. But Jezebel, now enters Jezebel, Jezebel his wife, came to him and said to him, how is it that your spirit is so sullen that you're not eating food? She wants to know why he's so upset, why he has gone to bed when it's not time for bed and why he won't come down for dinner. So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Notice her response here in verse seven. Jezebel, his wife said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Do you understand what she's saying? Are you the king of Israel or aren't you? Are you a king or are you a wimp? Are you gonna let some local yokel grape farmer have what you deserve? Look, my daddy would have never allowed such a thing. He was king and you're king. You're not subject to the law. Ahab, you are the law. That's the essence of what this evil woman is hammering home. So notice with, I'm sure, a devilish anger in her heart, she says, arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard. And in the Hebrew text, that's the portion that is emphasized. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And so her covetous evil plan begins to unfold. And she is going to be guilty of four sinful, wicked activities, forgery, false witness, perjury, and murder. And she is going to incite a crime wave that will take down an innocent, godly man. Now follow along, starting with me here in verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letter saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. So using Ahab's letterheads, she sends a letter to the elders and the nobles there down in Jezreel. And she seals the letter with the king's signet ring, which means Ahab literally had to take it off his finger and she put the stamp on the letter he's fully aware of the evil that is transpiring such that when we come down to verse 19, God will hold him guilty for murder and for theft. He may not have pulled the trigger, but as the head of his home, he yielded to evil. And so Jezebel, she does the dirty work and notice what she writes, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. Now Naboth is not about to change his righteous convictions for the whim of some king. He's not about to give up his property that God says he should not give up. And so since he denies her husband on religious grounds... She turns to a religious platform and calls for a religious fast. And if you've studied the Old Testament at all, you know that there were times in Israel's history when the people would fast. And sometimes if God's hand was against them and they wanted to find out who in essence was the Achan in the camp. And so she calls a fast and she has Naboth seated at the head of the table, not because she wants to honor him. No, this is just a religious ploy. She has a plan to destroy him. And the elders and the nobles of the land know all about it. She was saying to the Jews, look, God is angry with us. There's a problem here in the community. And so we're going to have this fast. It's just a religious trick of sorts. And with that plan, they get Naboth. Naboth. They seat him at the head of the table. Again, not to honor him, but to punish him. And again, she's gonna accuse him, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the table and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, you cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders, the nobles, they get these two worthless men who bear false testimony and they said, you cursed both God and the king. And so her fast is basically based on a religious principle where God said you need at least two witnesses. You might want to put out in the margin next to this verse, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6. Let me read it to you. There Moses wrote on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, either one, two or three witnesses. By the way, God recites this principle in the New Testament. You don't believe every accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses. He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, it may be an injustice, but it's a legal injustice. It's legal, it's religious, but it's going to bring about an illegal death. And we are doing the same today over a million babies every year are being torn apart limb by limb by limb in a mother's womb. We can rationalize and say, it's legal. And this woman is rationalized. It's clean. It's neat. It's legal. But she is going to shed innocent blood. Two worthless men say, you curse God and the king. The Hebrew Bible reads testify against him saying, you blessed God and the king. It's a euphemism in Hebrew that means the opposite. In fact, it's come down to our day where we say, well, he blessed him out, meaning he really gave it to him. In either case, this woman who hates God used the principle from God's law, and she wants to basically bring down Yahweh on his own turf using his own righteous word. Now, right out on the margin, and let me read it to you, Exodus 22:28. 28. There God said through Moses, you shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. In addition, Leviticus chapter 24, we're told, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Now, why not take him out just on that one charge? You curse God, you're a dead man. Why manufacture two charges? Curse God and you curse the king. Well, it's a good question, so I'm glad you asked it this morning. If Naboth Naboth had only cursed God, then they would have taken him outside of the city they would have stoned him to death, but her ultimate objective would not have been accomplished. If he had cursed God only, then the land, based on the principles of karam, or, or uh, Kerim, it's a Hebrew word that means devoted to, you can read all about this in Leviticus chapter 27, then the land would have reverted to the priesthood. But understand, if he cursed God and the king, then he's a traitor to the crown and is a payment to the king, then the land would go directly to the king. And so they accuse them of cursing both God and the king. They get these two worthless men, as God describes them, and they frame him on a capital charge, and they convince the people of the guilt. And so the scripture says they took him out and stoned him to death. A criminal could not be stoned within the city you had to take him outside of the city where he would be executed. And that's why the Bible makes it very clear in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was crucified outside of the city wall. And so here's a woman, Jezebel, that has really become a representative name for evil. And that's why moms and dads, I've never met a, a girl named Jezebel. Have you. I've never met one. There's a reason behind that. So verse 11... The men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. So as Jezebel was accustomed to, she had her cronies. She had her men who had worked for her. And the elders of the city and the nobles, they confer with these two worthless men. They cooperate together. And off comes this wicked, evil crime. And so they carry out the plans. They're like bureaucratic robots. You say, but look, she had her mafia. You can't blame the people for joining in. I mean, after all, you know, they had families too, the elders and the nobles especially. They had a livelihood. They had a job to make. They, they had to protect their own children. We know how evil that they just desired to live themselves. You can understand the dilemma, but you can never justify their evil. And these verses remind us that injustice always flourishes where there are weak men. Wickedness grows in the midst of weakness, it flourishes not because of a lack of goodness, but because of a lack of guts. Men who are unwilling to stand up for what God has said to be true. Politicians who, in our day, are allowing this lawlessness to spread in our land, but they're afraid to stand up for what is right because they might be labeled. So, these elders, these nobles, they're in the city of Jezreel, they are willing to bend the rules. They're willing to serve this idolatrous, evil woman because they fear the woman more than they fear God. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 10 that his people would many times be brought before leaders, before governors and kings. And in the same breath, he then says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a decision you have to make. Will you fear man or will you fear God? So watch the plan as it's carried out. Notice verse 12. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then the two worthless men came in and sat before him. And the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. You can see him jerking him out of the seat. Women are screaming. Children are crying. And one by one, they throw their stones. His limbs are crushed. His legs are broken. His head is smashed over like an eggshell broken in someone's hand. And he loses his life. Why? For obeying the laws of God. And I'm sure there were some legalists who thought, couldn't he just bend a little bit? I mean, for the sake of his life, for the sake of his wife, for the sake of his family? Not this man. He is a part of that group that the writers to the Hebrews describes as being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy. And so he is unjustly pulverized to death. It appears that his testimony is mute. Look at verse 14. It tells us, Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. How convenient. He is dead, and not only is he dead, put out in the margin, 2 Kings 9.26, she wipes out his every son in the family. Not only do they stone Naboth, they stone all of his sons. No possible inheritance rights. It's a clean, done deal. It is so cunning and so evil. She made it to be an open and shut case. And it all began with covetousness in Ahab's heart. And now it's led to theft and murder of a man and the sons in his family. Look at verse 15 when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead. And let me just pause here for a moment. I don't know what Jezebel was doing when she received the news from the elders and the nobles that he was dead some 20 miles away. But I know that she received it with a sense of joy and delight and accomplishment because of what then she says. Notice Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Did she care that he had a grieving wife that was washing the body of her husband or her sons with her own tears for burial? Did she care that outside the walls of the city that Naboth's blood was being licked up by the dogs? All that mattered to her is that she had defied the living God, Yahweh, and she got her way. She was not grieved by her own wicked sin any more than a wolf is sad that they have just devoured a lamb. She says, I have wonderful news, husband. He's dead. It's ours. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession. So here in this first section, we are reminded that many times the outcome of God's people in this world is not always good. Remember the Old Testament, the Scripture says in the New Testament, was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And it's a reminder that very often... God's people are treated unjustly. Peter reminds us in his first letter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is one of the critical lessons of 1 Kings 21. And it's a lesson that Jesus teaches in the Gospels. Now, I know it's difficult for Christians often in the West to grasp this principle because we are being plummeted by slick preachers who tell us that God's will is for everything to be sweet and wonderful. And so Benny Hinn says, and I quote him, he promises, God promises to heal all, everyone, any, any, whatsoever, everything, all our diseases. That means that not even a headache, sinus problem, not even a toothache, nothing, no sickness should come your way. If that were true, if God wants to remove our problems right down to our dental work, if he wants to bless us with money, as this same false teacher teaches that you can be rich, then how do you explain a guy like Naboth? Look, I'm not a pessimist, but I am a realist. And I know that the sober realism of our day is that the true gospel has been diluted by all of these false prophets. Heartache, persecution, injustice, it is very often the lot of God's people. But I also learn from this portion of scripture that we have a Naboth who understands, we have a great high priest who with similar false witnesses was accused of blaspheming God and rebelling against Caesar. And they garnered two false witnesses and what they meant for evil, God used according to his predetermined plan and foreknowledge to bring about your salvation and mine for anyone who will believe. And so Matthew says, now the chief priests, the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on, two came forward. Two false witnesses, that's all that was needed, and it worked. Isaiah says he was crushed, he was pierced, he was scourged for our sin, but right before that, he described some of the heartache that he carried during this life that surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. We have one who can identify with injustice. He shared in the sufferings and the injustices of the neighbors of this world. Indeed, the Scripture says you cannot leave this world as a believer without having some kind of persecution. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It may come, and most often Jesus taught it comes verbally, but it may come physically. But he said, blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me, for great is your reward in heaven. Now, that's the lesson to the first section. save people will pay now. You will pay if you live for Christ and you speak for him. You will suffer maybe verbal abuse, maybe physical abuse, but you will suffer. The second lesson of this chapter is that lost people will pay later. They will pay later. Now, when you come to the end of verse 16, it seems like everything has been taken care of. The Naboth, Naboth case is just closed. And I'm sure Jezebel congratulated herself for having pulled off this wicked, classic crime. The Samaritan government has run over this Jezreelian fool. We've won. And when you read the first half of this chapter, the first time, the ignorant critic will say, Where is your God? Is he deaf? Is he paralyzed? Can he do anything? And then like a breath of fresh air, verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Now we've been studying Elijah the Tishbite and we've seen that he is a prophet who lives in a time where tens of thousands of Israelis have forsaken God. They have torn down his altars and they have violated his covenants. And you know that when God tells Elijah the prophet what has happened to Naboth, a God-fearer, his heart is broken, and it's filled with righteous anger. Now this series, if you've been with us, we went from chapter 19 to chapter 21. And if you remember, if you were here last time, we saw Elijah the prophet had passed his mantle on to Elisha because he's going to disciple him for years to follow and build into his life so that when he is removed from this earth, though the worker is gone, the work will continue. He's one of earth's greatest heroes, and he's certainly one of heaven's greatest saints. And so God's word comes to him. Look at verse 18. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel. I love the way verse 18 opens. It's in sharp contrast to verse 15, where she said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard. And I'm so glad that I live in a universe, though that while the devil has his Ahabs, we have a God who can say to his Elijahs, arise, arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, you have murdered and have also stolen, taken possession. Have you murdered and also taken possession? Yes, you have. And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Now, this overlooked, ignored factor among wicked men and wicked women in a wicked society is is changed when we realize how death equalizes everyone. You know what the death rate is? One for one, 100%. And death is a great equalizer. The writer of the Hebrews says, for it is appointed for a man to die once, and after this comes judgment. And so verses 18 and 19 are a reminder to us that no one escapes the judgment of God. Doesn't matter how rich or powerful or how well-liked they may be, no one escapes the justice of God. And Elijah, he finds out from God himself. He doesn't hear it from other people. God himself says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. And it looked like a slick, airtight job that it was all done. Her letters have already been shredded. All the evidence is gone. And all it cost her was a postage stamp. And it's done, and they've got the property. He may be dead to Jezebel and Ahab, but Naboth is not dead to God Almighty. And by the way, it is a reminder to me of this same truth when Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica in his second letter, they are just being beaten black and blue and killed. Why? Because they confessed Jesus as Lord. And it was so intense, they thought, maybe we misunderstood Paul. Maybe we misunderstood the rapture, which he will clarify in the 2 Thessalonians 2. No, you haven't missed it. It's sometimes just a part of being a Christian. And it reminds us, for after all, it is only just. For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Wonderful when. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Likewise, in the Revelation, we studied it. John has a vision of all the lost people of all time brought together at the end of the millennial reign of Messiah. And he said, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Just like God did not miss Ahab, he does not miss anyone. He writes that he saw the great and the small. No one is so great that they can be missed and no one is so small that they will be ignored. The big shot, the little shot, the famous, those who no one knew their name, the wealthy, the poor, it doesn't matter, kings and paupers, the lost of all time, all who say no to Yeshua will meet God in eternal judgment. And So just about the time that Ahab walks in to take possession of his brand new vineyard, He comes face to face with God's man. Notice verse 20. So Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then with righteous indignation he says, behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut you off from Ahab every male, Both bond and free in Israel, and I will make you like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. What happened in Jeroboam's house? There was a guy named Basha, the third king in Israel's history, and he killed every son of Jeroboam. The whole group is wiped out. And like God uses an evil man to wipe out an evil man. And like the house of Basha, what happened to him? He was eaten by dogs. And his relatives who died in the field were eaten by birds. I will make your house like their house. Why? Because of the provocation which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying the dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. And so Ahab and Jezebel thought they had stolen a vineyard, but what they had really stolen was their future, and life forever with the living God. Furthermore, verse 24 says, the one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. That's Jezebel, his wife. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Those are his descendants, just like Basha. God is telling Ahab through Elijah that someday in the place, where they literally licked up Naboth's blood, they'll lick up your blood. He is reminding him that while he annihilated Naboth, God saw it. You may have ripped him off and murdered him, but God saw it. And so summarizing his life, notice verse 25, surely, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols according to all the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. And with those words, he makes Ahab cower in his tracks and Elijah suddenly disappears as fast as he had appeared. And he'll ride his chariot 20 miles all the way back To Samaria with those words ringing in his mind. Now, look at his response starting in verse 27. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. I mean, can you imagine how infuriating this must have been to Jezebel? What are you doing, man? What are you tearing your robes for? Why are you putting that ash on your face? You're telling the whole nation that we're guilty. You're telling everyone that we killed somebody, that we stole their vineyard. Don't tell that to the nation. Look at verse 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. And people read this and they say, God, why don't you just zap him? Have you gone soft? No, God has not gone soft. He's not like the politician who makes one kind of a promise and then does something else. You say, well, is God being slack? I mean, doesn't God see that this fellow tearing his clothes and putting ash on his face is not real? Please understand, it is important to distinguish between the postponement of God's wrath and the actual cancellation of God's wrath, because there is a big difference. But sometimes in answer to human response, God stays the judgment. God does here. He sees Ahab's response. And so he doesn't obliterate his house as soon as he might have. He's giving this man an opportunity to repent. Why? Because God loves to forgive. I mean, clearly from what God said in verse 29, Ahab's remorse made an impression on God. But sadly, while his remorse is sincere, it's not lasting, it may be serious, but it is only temporary. He's like the person that Jesus describes in the parable of the sower where he describes four responses people make when they hear the word and the first three soils is that of unbelievers and those that hear the word but it doesn't take root who fall away. He says those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear receive the word with joy and these have no firm root. They believe for a while And in time of temptation, they fall away. We studied this on Wednesday night. We saw that every time you see the word belief, it's not always in reference to saving faith. The demons believe and tremble. Obviously, they're not saved. It's intellectual. It's here. They give assent to it here, but they never truly believe with the heart unto righteousness. So Ahab is like the one who takes a step towards God, but never actually steps into the kingdom of God. And as you read the rest of the narrative, it is clear that he didn't truly repent. Because if he had truly repented, he would have relinquished the vineyard and given it back. And so with all that said, there's real remorse, but there's not real repentance. But God yearns for people to repent and believe. You say, had he truly believed, would God have forgiven him? He would have forgiven him as much as he forgave the thief on the cross, as much as he forgave wicked King Manasseh, who did unspeakable things, but he came to genuine faith, and you will meet him in heaven someday. God's mercy on Ahab is real. God's appeal was real, but he wanted him to go deeper. But you see, God knows all. That's why the scripture can say, before the foundation of the world, God wrote the name of every person whom you will meet in heaven. You say it was all fixed. No, it was not all fixed. God is omniscient. If God didn't know that, God would not be God. And had this man responded to God's initiative, you would meet him in heaven, but God knew he wouldn't respond. Did God want him to respond? God is giving him a real chance to respond. That's why God said to Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. God gets excited when he can forgive people and show people mercy. He's reaching, he's wooing, he's prodding Ahab, but he doesn't believe. Well, did God mean what he said? Did his judgment finally come? Oh, yes, it did. As certainly as night follows day, judgment came on his home just as God predicted. When mercy is spurned, God has not mocked whatever a man sows, that he will reap. The person who will not go in the direction that God points him to, he will meet God someday in a terrible day of wrath. The home that has no room for Jesus Christ will meet God in death and judgment in hell. The church that soft-pedals the message of the Bible, who is not faithful to the truth, delivered the faith, delivered to the saints once and for all. Someday God will write Ichabog over that church, meaning the glory of the Lord has departed. The individual who misuses God's name and repeatedly takes it in vain, the Scripture says that someday the Lord will not leave him unpunished, who takes his name in vain, the homosexual who acts on a wicked passion, the heterosexual who sleeps around with women to whom they are not married. God says her house is to the way of hell going down to the chambers of death. The college student who likes to drink his booze, to get his buzz, to get drunk. God says drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Proverbs warns, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. Job said, according to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Hosea said, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. That is, they sin like a breeze, but it comes back to them like a cyclone. And the Savior of the world will say to the lost of all time, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Judgment is coming. People may think they're having a big time now and they're getting away with it. And that's what the devil wants to convince you. He wants you to have his kind of happiness, but it never works. God is giving a warning through Ahab And knowing that God is omniscient, every word of prophecy is literally fulfilled. Again, did this judgment that God prophesied against this king happen? You better believe it. Three years go by. Ahab is still king. And I'm sure during those three years as they're eating the herbs from their new vegetable garden, I can almost hear his wife say, Ahab, help yourself to these herbs. (laughs) Elijah, the prophet, he said the dogs were going to lick your blood. I guess they lost the scent. But one day, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the king of the southern kingdom, comes to Ahab, the king of Israel, the king of the northern kingdom, and they had a common enemy. And they were actually friends. Why? Because Ahab's daughter, the Scripture reminds us, married his son. And so Jehoshaphat comes and says, I think we need to deal with this guy because if we don't deal with him, he's going to deal with us. And Ahab says, you're right, we need to. But Jehoshaphat says, are there any prophets of the Lord that we can consult so we can find out whether or not God will give us victory? And so, yes, he says, of course. And you can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 22. He says, yes, I've got 400 prophets. I thought they were all killed by Elijah. They were years before. But they're just property of the king. He gets 400 new prophets. So he gets the 400 prophets together. And the scripture says in chapter 22 that they claim to speak in God's name. They claim to speak by God's spirit. They claim to to promise God's success. Go ahead, Ahab, the victory is yours. It's okay for you and Jehoshaphat to go up. But Jehoshaphat smells a problem here. He says, is there not someone else, another prophet that we can inquire? Well, there's still one, his name is Micaiah, but I hate him. Because every time he prophesies, he always gives me bad news. Well, I think we need to hear from him. Now remember, God was gracious to this man. He still gave him one true voice. Who would tell him what was real? Why? Because God loves people. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But his heart is hard. It's unrepentant. It is now established. And I wonder if the contemporary evangelical church has not slid back into the Ahab mindset where we may not be hostile to the Word of God, but we're embarrassed by it. So we've got our contemporary little churches that advertise a safe, non-judgmental atmosphere. What does that mean? It means you don't want to say anything negative. You certainly don't want to make people feel guilty because it will never fill seats. So an emissary goes and retains Micaiah the prophet. And this party-pooping prophet comes along and listen to what 1 Kings twenty-two thirteen 13 says. But now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of them and speak favorably. Say what we said. So Micaiah, the prophet, comes right back and says, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, I shall speak. And so with tongue in cheek, he comes into the presence of the king and he says, go up, king. The victory is yours. And while we cannot hear the tone of voice, it's obvious from the response that Ahab knows that he's speaking sarcastically. And so he says, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? You're not telling me the truth. You've never told me the truth. You never preached anything good before. When in reality, everything he said was good because everything he said was true. So he gives it to him. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. If Israel has no shepherd, if Israel has no master, that means Ahab's going to be eliminated in the battle. And by biting implication, then Israel will really have peace. So there you have it, king. You tell me if you should go up to Ramoth Gilead or not. But you see, because Ahab is never really repentant, he can't hear the word of God. And some of you watching me, some of you listening to me, you think you've got tomorrow, next week, next year to make a decision for Christ. But when you keep putting God off, there will come a point where you cannot hear the word of God. Jesus said the devil will take the seed and snatch it that they may not believe and be saved. So at this point, it doesn't matter to him whether Micaiah speaks truth or falsehood because he's beyond the point of hearing a clear word from the almighty god. So Micaiah warns Ahab in 1 Kings 22:22, 22, 22, "Don't listen to all these false prophets. They are speaking by a deceiving spirit." reminds me of the antichrist when God, is a judgment, will send a deluding influence, that because of people's lack of response during the tribulation, the Bible says, they will embrace what is false. That's what Ahab is doing. And listen to me, if, if you're listening to God's word as just a more, mere formality to you, you ought to be scared to death because you're playing Russian roulette with your soul. And so Zedekiah, A leader among these 400 prophets steps up to the plate. I mean, he made church fun. He spoke to the king about all the victory. He's a Joe Olsteen of sorts. This is great. This is a fun thing. We're going to have victory, king. So Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, came there and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And so they throw him into the slammer where all he can eat is bread and water for preaching the truth. You see, what Ahab did not understand and what so many today do not understand is that God's word is both free and it is true. It cannot be manipulated by a king or by a messenger or by some sleek preacher or some politician or some supreme court. You cannot manipulate it. You can baptize it in religion. And so Nancy Pelosi says, yeah, we keep the golden rule. We believe the golden rule while she endorses the slaughter of innocent children. She says black lives matter where 49% of the babies killed in America are African American babies. Black, Black lives don't matter to her. God's word is true, and it is free. You cannot imprison it. So a couple comes to me, and they want me to marry them. And as, like any couple, we do the initial counseling appointment to see if I can marry them. She's a believer. He is not. And I share the gospel. Does he want to receive Christ? No. I say, I can't marry you. And he says, Pastor, do you realize that we're gonna move here. We wanted to join your church. And we have family that go to this church. And we won't come to this church. And I guarantee my family won't come to this church. And we'll find some other clergy in town that will marry us. And what they don't understand is that the word of God is not under my control. I'm in bondage to the word of God. And so here's Micaiah. he's a lonely preacher. But he is telling the unadulterated truth. And Ahab does not listen. Nonetheless, he's cautious. Because this guy's got a track record. I mean, he has a bundle of contradictions as you read chapter 22. On the one hand, he hates the word of God. On the other hand, he wants to hear the word of God. On the one hand, he fears the word of God. On the other hand, he defies the word of God. He's a perfect picture of a natural man, someone who's lost. And somehow he thinks he can outsmart God. So they go into battle and he dresses up like a buck private. They won't get me, they're looking for the king. And then some stray error under the providence and the sovereignty of God finds one little crack in his armor. He said, This is fatal, take me home. And the blood is dripping all over the floorboards of the chariot. And by the time they bring him back to the city, he's a dead king. And they take his chariot to that place where the prostitutes get ready every night and paint their faces. And they wash the blood out of his chariot. And the dogs lick up his blood. And God's word through Elijah is literally fulfilled. Fast forward 20 years. Queen Jezebel is now ruling the kingdom through her son Joram. And I'm sure by this time she has laughed about Elijah's prophecy. He's been gone for 20 years. God had taken him up into heaven. But one day she tries to seduce a man by the name of Jehu. She calls down from her balcony, her second story balcony, Jehu, all painted up. And he says, you two guys, you for me? Yes, throw her over. And she hits the ground and smashes her head, and she's dead. A few hours later, he thinks, you know, she is a king's daughter. We should at least bury her. But by the time he sends a contingency of men to go get her and to bury her, all that's left is her skull, her feet, and the palm of her hands. The rest of her body had been eaten by dogs. This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant, Elijah the Tishbite, saying in the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And like her husband, this infamous queen had been swept into hell. Now I hope you've been listening this morning because there are two major lessons and you don't want to miss them. Save people will pay now. You will pay with persecution. You will be left out. You'll be ignored. Sometimes you'll be slandered. And some of God's people are paying with their lives. But lost people, they will pay later. And Ahab and Jezebel illustrates this for us. God said judgment would come and it came. And you may be here this morning. You think you've got life by the horns and you're on top of everything. And you may be a God-hater like Jezebel, or you may be someone who's covered over an outward religion with no inward reality, but either way, there will come a time when it will be too late, and you'll be swept into hell. And God didn't make hell for you. He made hell for the devil and his angels. And if you go to hell, you'll be trespassing. God wants you to go to heaven. He wants to forgive you but his justice will be met either in your life where you spend an eternity away from him or you come and embrace a substitute who has pierced through for our transgressions who has chastened for our well-being and god caused the punishment that we deserve to fall upon him would you call upon him today the risen lord now our father thank you for your word it is true it never changes and we live in a day where people mock it and ignore it. And they baptize their wicked lifestyle with a verse here or there. But help us not to be deceived. Help us to realize what is unfolding in our day. The very things that the Lord Jesus prophesied would happen at the end of the age. I pray that we might have hearts filled with compassion that is, someone cared about our soul enough to reach out and invite us to church or to share a testimony or the plan of salvation, may our hearts be filled with compassion where we tell them of a Savior who died, who was buried, who was raised for them, that if they will call upon him in faith, they can be saved. Thank you for the incredible mercy that you've shown us. Though our sins are many, many your mercy is greater I pray today for some dear person listening to me that they would realize what you've said, that today is a day of salvation. When you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Help them to realize they have no promise of tomorrow. Help them to realize that to put you off is to harden their heart where they will not be able to hear you. Help someone, Father, in simple childlike faith, believing what you promised, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it in our Savior's name and for his honor. Amen.